Take your Bibles and turn quickly to Matthew chapter 18. Yes, I am preaching a full sermon, but I am going to go quick. So buckle up! Uh, I will also in this one invite you uh, into uh, the life of the pastor. This is one of the elements of my world in which uh, most people don't think about and don't uh, consider, I guess. You get to see me up front, you get to see me preach or pray or things like that, things I've prepared for, but uh, a substantial portion of my world is spent uh, in this middle section of Matthew 18. It's a joy and a privilege to be a part of it, I think, this week. Uh, this last week was 15 hours doing this, which is a good thing. Uh, praise God for a, a church that, that goes uh, in this way. All right, so uh, Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other ninety-nine that never went astray. So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would send your Spirit, give light and understanding to our hearts. For Christ's sake, amen. What makes the church the church? Uh, Put differently, what what is the minimum that the church has to do in order to continue being a church? This is actually a question, I mean, you may not have thought about this, but this is a question that a lot of uh, sessions and and leaders have been forced to ask over the last, you know, 15, 16 months uh, as the COVID pandemic has swept through uh, our country and all over the world and churches and state governments and federal governments and things, rules have changed. It's forced churches kind of all across the spectrum to ask that question in some form or fashion. What makes the church the church? What's the minimum that we can do in order to still be the church? Do we stop being the church if we have Sunday school or don't have Sunday school? What about if we don't have nursery? What about, do we still continue being the church if we don't pass an offering plate? What about if we have to change how our fellowship activities work? What if it means that we cancel some of our activities? What does it mean? What's the minimum requirement to be a church? 
Now, interestingly, uh, it's funny that we've been asking that question. It shows our, what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, uh, that we're asking a question that the Protestant church answered hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Uh, This has been exceedingly clear for Protestants from the very beginning as uh, we established what it means to be the church. It's most clearly articulated in the Belgic Confession, uh, Article 29, but the church has historically held it this way. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. Number one, the church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. Number two, It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. And number three, it practices church discipline for correcting faults. Historically, Protestants have said three things are required in order to be a church. You have to faithfully preach the word. You have to rightly administer the sacraments. And you have to practice church discipline. Now, Calvin, uh, classic Calvin, he actually said there were two. He said it was the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the sacraments because it is impossible to administer the sacraments without discipline. That was Calvin's idea. It's impossible to administer the sacraments without church discipline. As you can tell, this is my favorite sermon already. We're excited. A thing I love to talk about and spend all of my energy on thinking through and talking about the joys of what it means to be the church and to say that in order to be the church, in order for Christ Ridge to be a church, we have to be a church that practices church discipline. So you get a sermon on church discipline. Now, the context of the passage here, Matthew 18, is where it's begun, is with where I read even of Jesus dealing with the extreme severity of the importance of sin. He he hates sin, and of course, it's right that he would. He's God. He's also getting ready to take all of those sins to the cross, so he understands how big of a deal they are because he knows what it's going to cost him, but even to the point to say, look, it's better to to be crippled in your body than to allow sin to dwell in your soul. He's extremely concerned with causing other people to sin. That's where we got verse 10. Don't don't let any of these little ones, even the children that, that in the time in which they were writing, were not important. Right? Children in the time in which this was written were overlooked. They were neglected. And don't let even them be scandalized and fall into sin. And he then jumps into a conversation about church discipline. And I'm going to walk us through, hopefully, kind of a little bit out of order, but intellectually, I think, a a useful way to consider it. The first thing I would challenge for us to kind of think about is that uh, it is interesting that Jesus assumes in Matthew 18 that people in the church will sin against you. It, It is not a matter of if. Right? This is a chapter that the grammar of the English here has if, but the, the grammar of how it's written, the intellectual ideas behind it is, this is not an if chapter, it's a when chapter or section. Meaning that when we go to, to minister in the church, to exist in the church, to live in the church, it is an 
important, imperative, necessary realization to know that people will sin against you. And I'm going to push even further and say it's important to understand that they will sin against you personally, intentionally, sometimes even downright willfully. And this should in some ways bring us a bit of comfort because what it means is that the church is not and has never been designed for perfect people right now. It is comprised of people that wrestle with sin still. It's one of my favorite kind of conversations to have with people who are unbelievers and wrestling with the church and they say, well, the church is filled with hypocrites. And I say, I know I agree. It's the only reason I'm comfortable there. Right? If the church was only filled with perfect people, I, one, wouldn't have a job. But if it was only filled with people who never struggled with sin, I wouldn't belong and neither would you. None of us would be in the building today. We'd be the ones awkwardly kind of looking in the parking lot, kind of peeping in, going, I wonder if they'll let me in. Right? We wouldn't belong. The church is filled with people that struggle with sin. And as long as we're filled with people that struggle with sin, we're going to have failures in sin, and we're going to have failures in sin that are sometimes downright hurtful and personal. It should not surprise you. Right? Sometimes people are going to do this. They are sinners. We are sinners. It's, it's going to happen. In fact, I would even go one step further and say, sometimes the devil is going to try to make it look that way, even when it isn't. Now, this is my favorite part of church ministry, trying to navigate, figuring out when there's actual sin that's been committed, and sometimes where it's just, no, we've just got our wires crossed, and it just looks like I've been hateful to you, or you've been hateful to me. But the devil absolutely seeks to use these personal and intentional sins that are committed against one another. And friends, I will tell you that the number one thing that I see the devil seeking to cultivate uh, through these sins that where our feelings get hurt and our, our, we get upset because we've been the victim or we've been wronged, the number one thing is he tries to cultivate a bitter heart. Because he knows that if you can allow bitterness to flourish in your soul, that bitterness, the Proverbs calls it the root of bitterness, it, it grows out, it has tendrils, it, it spreads into other things, and it will begin to affect how you see your family and ha- how you see your friends and how you see your church and how you see your church members and how you see your Savior. Because bitterness is at its core ultimately selfish. It should be no surprise to us that we will be sinned against, and in fact, we need to be so aware of it that we are almost maniacal about looking for the root of bitterness in our own hearts. Friends, it is shocking how easy it is for bitterness to creep in and to slowly start growing, and it begins to taint how we see them and see ourselves, and see the people around us. And I love how Jesus here in Matthew 18 gives us the plan of attack. What am I supposed to do? Somebody did something hateful to me. They, they hurt my feelings. They wronged me. They did something, maybe again, maybe it was intentionally personal. I don't like Michael and I want to hurt him. People do that. It happens. I'm not ignorant, I know. 
So he gives us the steps to follow here in verses uh, 15 and following. Now, I have to kind of give uh, two kind of just caveats before we start. One, these commands are actually binding today. So when I go through this section, this is a manual for how Christ Ridge is commanded to act as a church. Absolutely important. Secondly, this is a manual for how to act between the victim and the sinner and no one else. Meaning, uh, I am from the South. I understand what it is like to be a busybody. I have been one at least one point in my life, I'm sure. There is a temptation to watch other people's sins and to want to weigh in on the matter. Uh, There's a, a good biblical command to kind of stay in your lane Keep your nose down, mind your own business. This is the pattern that Jesus is laying out. All right, so four steps. Four steps. Step number one, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So it's a a one-to-one. A conversation that takes takes place privately. A person has sinned against me. It is uh, on my um, honor to then go and to talk with said person. To have a conversation with them and to confront them uh, on their fault. Now, uh, sometimes we we maybe even have gotten excited about this and done this in the past and it's gone really badly for us. And that's sometimes because maybe we're not entirely thoughtful about it. It's interesting, Jesus is making the point that what you are specifically supposed to deal with here. You're supposed to deal with the fault at hand. Right, The fault at hand. We're not asking for 50 years of history. I remember uh, how easy it is for all of us to want to deal with one specific conflict at hand by inflating it to an entire global situation, right? So-and-so hurt my feelings. That means, therefore, we need to fight about everything that we've ever fought about I know married people, you've never had this happen, have you? Where you go to have a conversation about the one thing that you forgot today and oh no, we're talking about everything that we've ever fought about for the last 35 years, all in one go. And it's staggeringly confusing. And you know, the amazing thing is it's, it's virtually unresolvable because you're not actually trying to fix a fault. You're not, you're not dealing with a problem. At that point, you're just fighting with a person. Interestingly, Jesus instead has a pattern. When your brother sins against you, you go and you deal with that specific fault in that specific season with that specific person. You don't go to uh, your next door neighbor to talk about their fault. You don't go to your other church members to talk about their fault. You don't go to even your pastor to talk about their fault. Who are you supposed to go to? You go to them. You know, the amazing thing is, in this church, been here now for quite a while, the vast majority of times where these conversations take place, you get one of two responses. One, I have no idea, I'm so sorry. I have no idea, I'm so sorry. Or two, you're right, and I'm so sorry. And I mean like above 90% of the conversations that I'm part of that we get to this point, that's what the response is. People are, are genuinely warm-hearted and kind, but you've got to have it. 
Unfortunately, I do need to make at least one caveat because some churches in the United States and Reformed churches over the last 10 years have really messed this up. Um, if you need to call the police, please call the police. And I'm just going to go ahead and say that now. Right? If, if, it's a, if it's a crime, call the cops and then call me second. Right? We've watched this happen over uh, the United States again, like I said, some of the Reformed churches over the last decade or so. And we don't, we don't want to do that. I mean, if it's a legal matter, please get legal help. All right, so assuming, step one, we'll assume for argument's sake, that's what Jesus does, that it doesn't go well. You sit down with your brother, uh, you've talked with him, just the two of you, and it hasn't gone well. Well, if it goes well, he listens to you, you've gained him back, you've won him back. But if he doesn't, verse 16, he doesn't listen, well, there's step two. Instead, you don't just go by yourself, but you take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. These would be people that perhaps might be knowledgeable in the situation, certainly respectable, and would be able to be um, used to induce the person to repent. To say, look, hey, I'm not crazy. It's not just me. Others know, they understand. Uh, Perhaps there were people there that witnessed the sin to give encouragement to the saint to repent. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's all it takes, and that's it. The saint repents, and and we're done. But Jesus continues, just in case, uh uh-oh, if he doesn't, well, verse 17, you have step three. Then you tell it to the church. And by tell it to the church here, specifically, he's meaning uh, not just the general body yet, but specific to the authority of the church, to the leadership of the church. Presbyterian church, it means telling the session. I'll go ahead and tell you right now, friends, if you don't know how our church works, if you've done step one and it didn't work, and you've done step two and it didn't work, come talk to me. I'm step three. That's in my job description, literally. I am step three. And what we do at that point is to figure out with the leadership to sit down with the person and to work through the sin and to work through the struggle. Sometimes that works. It's great. Praise God. Sometimes, unfortunately, it doesn't. And we move to step four, the end of 17. Let that person be to you as a Gentile than a tax collector. This means that they're cut off from the church. They're removed from the membership of the church and they're put away. Now, I would explain this is not a a, a petty or punitive thing. This is not the leadership of the church saying, hey, you're not behaving the way we want, so slap on the hand, you can't be a part of the club anymore. Instead, what this is saying is saying to a former member of the church to say, we believe you love your sin so greatly that we doubt as to whether or not you can love Jesus We long for you to love Jesus. We long for you to be a part of us. We long for you to be a rich and robust member of the church. But as you currently stand, we fear for your condition because you seem to love your sin. A fancy word for this is excommunication. It just means removed from the fellowship of the church. It's explained in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 is where you would want to read if you wanted to read elsewhere about it. But it's, it's a removal from the body, not because we're damning them to hell. We don't know their heart. I have no idea anybody's heart. I can't see their heart. I'm not, I don't have access to that. Instead, what we're saying is, by every indication, your outward behavior shows a, a greater commitment to your sin than it does to Jesus. 
even to the point of it being mutually exclusive. That's it. That's the manual. That's the manual for how to resolve conflict in the church. I would add kind of one caveat from the larger kind of body of the scriptures built together is that realistically, remembering that people sinning against you, it's a matter of when, not if. When somebody in this church sins against you or when I sin against you, you have two options and only two. You may either forgive and forget and put it away, or you may follow Matthew 18. That's it. Those are your choices. You don't have the the option, a third option. There's a third option of stewing on it privately, but after nine months, I'll put it away. Because realistically, we all know you stew on it for nine months and then you never put it away. You don't have the option of exploding and going kind of nuclear over it. You don't have the option of, of beginning it, telling it to the entire church, but not me, without ever having talked to the individual. That's called gossip, right? It's hateful. You don't have the privilege of dealing with it any other way except forgive and forget or Matthew 18. That's it. Those are your only two options. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment and and push this kind of uh, as application for all of us. Uh, Realistically, if you're even paying attention to the sermon with half a brain, you would realize that is a really uncomfortable reality. In fact, out of all the sermons that I've preached in the last six months that might irritate you, this should probably be pretty much near number one. Because realistically, all of us want to stew on it privately or publicly behind people's backs. We don't want to ever have to kind of actually deal with our sin. We like to keep it and let it fester. The reality is that's not acceptable for us. In fact, one step further on that is God has blessed this church and we continue to go praise God for this beautiful building. Praise God for all of the full seats around us. Praise God for baptisms two weeks out of the next three. What a, what a great joy. All that means is as we add members and add people in the, in the building, we add bodies to the church, it's just more opportunity for you to get your feelings hurt. It's more opportunity for you to get sinned against. It's more opportunity for you to have to realize you have two options, forgive and forget and actually forget. Or follow Matthew 18. So go do it. Go follow Matthew 18. You don't have to talk to me. You don't have to include me. You certainly don't need to include the entirety of the rest of the church. If somebody sins against you, go talk to them. Go sort it out. Now, if I end the sermon here, I understand that there will be like three people that walk out uh, that are excited about doing that. Usually those are the people that are already a little feisty and already a little fighty, and they're just really happy to get the pastor tell them it's okay to fight. The rest of us, particularly those that have perhaps lived in the South most of their lives, are going to walk out and say, oh, that was a great sermon, and then never have any intention of ever doing it. I know how this works. And honestly, some of us are going to say, well, really, at the end of the day, I'm not going to talk to somebody that sins against me because I don't want to. I just don't want to do it. Others will say, well, I, I don't know what to say. It's just too, it's too difficult. I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I never have the right words. I can't figure out how to say things. I say them all wrong. 
Others will say, well, it's, it's just too embarrassing. Do you know how embarrassing it is to sit down with somebody? Yeah, I literally know how embarrassing it is. I do it all the time. I get it. I know this. The interesting thing is the rest of the passage is kind of the theological wrapping to help us put this into practice. I honestly don't want to sit down with people. I don't like following Matthew 18. I'd much rather just be privately angry. I don't want to forgive and forget. I don't want to deal with it. I just want to be mad. But there's a theological reason for this, and that's the rest of the the section. Uh, First theological reason, and this is of extreme importance. I'm sorry I'm long. I don't really care, though. Thank you for catching the joke. It was a joke. All right, first theological reason, very quickly, verse 12. What do you think if a man has, Jesus gives an illustration. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the other 99 and go look for the one that's lost? And when he finds the one that's lost, is he not more excited about the one than the 99 who stayed? The theological reality as to why Matthew 18 is so important is because Jesus is in the business of chasing the lost. That's the the identity of who God is. He is the God who goes after the lost. That's how you even made it in this building in the first place. How did you make it here this morning? He's the God who goes after the lost. How did you come to know him? He's the God that goes after the lost. And if you have any kind of hiccups in your testimony, you probably in some form or fashion can experientially understand, you know what? God delights in getting those people that have run. It's personal testimony. I don't do this that frequently, but do like to include you in my own spiritual life, my own spiritual development. I'll be candid. This is a verse I have never understood. I have struggled for almost my entire life thinking it's just not fair. How on earth could it be fair that God would delight in the reclamation, the reclaiming of one who was lost at the expense of those who stayed? And it's honestly been within the last two years that this has come into my understanding. One to begin to appreciate the delight of one who comes home. This is the first time in my entire life that I can emotionally understand that. To understand how my God would rejoice in a sheep that's come back. How delightful. And secondly, it was a great realization along the way that the only reason I wouldn't be excited is because I was so proud that I thought I had never run in the first place. You see, the reality is God is in the business of chasing the lost and those of us that get bent out of shape because it's unfair that those people who make dumb decisions get preferential treatment. It's because we think we never make dumb decisions. Friends, that is the heart of pride. To be angry That a person who has sinned and has gotten consequence after consequence after consequence for that sin to be angry that they don't get ultimate punishment is the height of pride. I know because I have felt it. God is in the business of chasing down his lost sheep. 
Secondly, if we were to look at the next verse here, you get into verse 14. Uh, Interestingly, God has designed discipline to keep people from destruction. A church that doesn't practice discipline is a church that's robbing their people of the good blessings of the faith. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish. Implication, what is the mechanism to keep them from perishing? Well, it's church discipline. Having hard conversations. You love your people. You love your brothers and sisters in the church. Have the hard conversations. It can save their soul. Third, very quickly, verse 18. Delivered to the officers of the church, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Interestingly here, what, what God is saying to his, uh, the leadership of the church is that they play an active role, an active uh, kind of participation in the salvation and the excellence of God's people. This is an element that I think sometimes that we forget is that we are God's hands and feet inside creation. We don't don't think about it. We talk about in the Reformed Church a lot that God works through his spirit, and that's good. And he works through his word, and that's good. And he works through baptism, and that's good. And he works through the Lord's Supper, and that's good. And he works through prayer, and that's good. The primary mechanism he uses to work on an everyday basis inside his creation is you. You don't need to be afraid of having a Matthew 18 sort of conversation. God has designed the world to work this way, and he's designed for you to be the one having it. And then lastly, 19 and 20, it's ultimately God's power that makes discipline effective. Again, I say to you, if two of you Agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And for our most out-of-context verse of the day, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is not ultimately talking about prayer meeting, though that's certainly important. It's ultimately talking about church discipline. To say that, look, God has promised to bless the process and he gives his spirit because he's designed it to work this way. So we don't need to be afraid or embarrassed about the fact that this church practices discipline. You should thank your elders. They do it, and they do a very good job. You don't need to be embarrassed and ashamed that God has called us to put Matthew 18 into practice. And you don't need to be embarrassed and ashamed when it happens. And I'll give just a couple of brief applications very quickly. Some of you will get opportunity to do this this week. It is amazing how God works in, through my sermons where uh, if I preach on patience, he's going to put aggravating people in all of our path in the coming week so that we have opportunity to put into practice that which we have heard. I'm almost guaranteeing, because I know all of us, uh, we're sinners. Somebody in this room is likely to give you opportunity to have to put this into practice this week. And you're going to have the opportunity to have the choice kind of wrapped out right there in front of you. Of, are you going to forgive and forget? Or are you going to sit down and have a conversation? Are you going to work it out? Are you going to confront? And honestly, some of us are going to say, it's just not worth it, which is not an answer. Because at the heart of that, it cuts at the fact that the Lord is in the business of chasing the lost. May it be that when you're given opportunity this week to put this into practice, you do it the right way, either forgive and forget, 
will follow Matthew 18. Secondly, weirdly enough, this is one of the best ways that you can actively keep this church as a healthy church. Right? There, there's really two primary things that you can do to make sure Christ Ridge stays healthy. Right? One, you can pray. And I tell you this all the time, pray for my preaching. No one wants my preaching to be better than me. Right? There's literally no one in this building that is, would be more excited about if I preach better than me myself because I have to listen to myself every time I preach. Pray. Right? I tell you that regularly. Our prayers change the world. They absolutely do. But in terms of how you yourself can actively help shape the health and the future of this church, Matthew 18 is one of the most significant ways you can do that. Because one, it will help keep sin from stewing in your own heart. But two is it will help keep divisions from developing in the church. Almost all of the pastoral letters that follow after the book of Acts, almost all of them are dealing with divisions in the church in some way. And almost all of them have developed because Matthew 18 has not been put into practice. God has blessed us richly. May it be that he would continue to do so. And one of the ways he would do that is by you being willing to obey God's command. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Even when it makes us uncomfortable, even when it tells me to do things I don't want to do. I thank you that when I don't want to do it like that, it, it means that I'm wrong and your Bible's not. And we ask that your spirit would be pleased to convince us and to change us and to put this into practice in our lives for Christ's sake. Amen.